So what is that single most urgent thing that you are pursuing today? If you were to examine your life and think through, what am I pursuing chiefly with my life? What would it be? And one way of saying that is, what is your mission in life? What is your mission? What are you pursuing? What is the mission that you are on? And, and the reality is, all of us are on mission. Every one of us are pursuing some mission with our lives. We, we might not have thought of it that way, but there is something that we think about more than other things. There is something that gets us up in the morning, Right? There's a reason why when you don't want to get up, you still get up, (laughs) right? You don't stay there in your bed. There's something, there's a mission that you are pursuing. Something that's driving you to do what you do. Something you love to think about more than other things. And if you're a believer in God, you have been called to the greatest mission of all. You were pursuing your own self-interest. Just think about it. That was your mission. That was your purpose. You had one purpose and one mission. It was your own self-interest. It was what you wanted, what you thought would make you happy. And now, (laughs) and yes, there's there's a battle going on, but now there's a competing mission, an infinitely greater mission. You see, there's a greater and a lesser missions, and there's a right and a wrong mission, but now you're on the greatest mission of all. You've been called to pursue the greatest mission of all. The greatest of all purposes is your mission in life. And so the question is, what is this mission? What is God's will for your life? And you could say it this way. Your mission is to glorify God through bearing witness of Jesus. Your your mission in life is to glorify God through bearing witness to Jesus. You see, God came to us. He condescended. He he lived a perfect, righteous life. He went to the cross and died as a sacrifice in order to deliver us from our sins in order to bring us into fellowship with God. And we are to witness to a dying and rebellious in a world under judgment that there is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is, without a doubt, the greatest purpose for living. And when will I recognize this, (laughs) you know? When will I recognize that there's no greater purpose, no greater mission than this? When will you recognize it? That this is the reason why we exist. Bearing witness of Jesus has actually been a theme throughout the Gospel of John. And I just want you to recognize that, okay? So we can look in John 1 verse 7. We learn that John the Baptist came to bear witness about the light. And we know that the light is Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 29 and 34, we see that John was not just sent to bear witness to the light, but he is bearing witness to the light. And it says, what he said was this, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. 
I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So that's him bearing witness to Jesus. And then Andrew tells his brother Simon Peter in verse 41, we have found the Messiah. And then in chapter 3, what is Jesus doing? He's bearing witness to Nicodemus. And then in chapter 4, what is Jesus doing? (laughs) He's bearing witness to the Samaritan woman about himself, about the gospel, the good news of who he is. And then we see in chapter 4 that the Samaritan woman, whom Jesus has been bearing witness to, now bears witness to the whole village. How incredible is that? This is a main theme, if not the main theme, of John so far. It's everywhere. And I want us to recognize and acknowledge that bearing witness to Jesus, like any significant work, is labor-intensive. It's very hard. It's hard work. It's not easy. And we need to be aware of that. You know, we live in a society that's entertainment-driven, don't we? And uh, everything is valued based on how easy it is, based on how little difficult it takes. If it doesn't make me look bad, (laughs) if it makes me look good, it's valuable. You know, if people are going to like me better, if, if it's going to bring me pleasure and, and comfort, then it's good. And so, bearing witness to Jesus, things that are difficult and hard work are not valued according to our worldly system. And it's hard work, and we need to understand that this is going to be hard work, but we need to understand this. There is no greater work that anyone could possibly do in this life than bear witness to Jesus. You know, you think about every work that we do has temporal value, doesn't it? But this has eternal rewards. And actually, it's mentioned in the verses that we look at. They're they're gathering rewards, right? The eternal life that comes to the gospel witness. This is eternal rewards that we're gathering. What greater mission could you do than bear witness to an all-glorious, magnificent, incomprehensible Savior who is Christ? All goodness, all glory flows through Him. What greater thing can we do but bear witness to this Savior? So in this passage, we're going to learn from Jesus about this mission that we are called to. Jesus is going to explain to his disciples, who are very confused about what Jesus is doing, he's going to explain his mission in verses 31 through 34. And then he's going to call his disciples to join him with urgency on this great mission in verses 35 through 38. And then we're going to look at an example of this mission that Jesus gives through the conversion of the Samaritan woman and her village in verses 27 through 30 and 39 through 42. So first, Jesus explains his mission to his confused disciples in verses 31 through 34. And so we begin with his disciples in shock, right? They return from shopping for food and are shocked at what they see. Jesus is talking to a woman. How shocking. And we'll spend more time on this a little later on, but I just want you to understand what's going on, all right, in verse 27. 
And at this time, when his disciples are shocked, the Samaritan woman leaves her water pitcher and goes into the village to tell them about Jesus. And once again, we'll get back to this as well, and that's verse 28 through 30. But I want to focus on what Jesus does for his disciples in response to their shock and confusion about his ministry and what he's doing. Jesus explains his mission. He tells them what he's doing in order to relieve their confusion in verses 31 through 34. And so his disciples come back after shopping and they have some food and they know Jesus is hungry and so they offer him some food. Right? They're concerned about Jesus. I mean, he's been, I'm sure he was very hungry, right? We know he was thirsty. Just a few verses before this, it says he was thirsty. And he was, I'm sure, hungry as well from the journey. And he hasn't had any food yet. And so Jesus responds to the, with these really obscure words when they offer him food. I have food to eat that you do not know about. So, so naturally, the disciples think someone has snuck him some Twinkies, right? Someone has given him food when we were gone, right? And this shouldn't be surprising to us because the disciples can only think on an earthly plane, right? That's the only way they can think. Just like the Nicodemus and just like the Samaritan woman, there's this earthly plane that they can only think on. And they can't quite move past it. So because of their confusion, Jesus explains his mission with these incredible words. He says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus wants his disciples to understand what his mission is. He wants them to understand what he is all about, what he's pursuing, what he's passionate about, what he's here to do. And so he compares his mission to eating food, right? And so the question we need to ask is, what does his mission have to do with eating food? What is he trying to drive at here? What is this comparison supposed to mean? And I think there are two ways we can understand this. First of all, I think we can understand this in the sense that food satisfies us, right? In one sense, I think Jesus is saying that he is motivated to do the Father's will because he finds his satisfaction in doing it. It sustains him. It satisfies him. I mean, isn't that why we pursue food? Because we need to be sustained and satisfied through eating? In a sense, Jesus finds greater satisfaction in his response to the disciples here in doing the Father's will than even in eating. He looks forward to it. He finds pleasure in it. It satisfies him. And so he pursues it like you would food, which you hunger for. But I would also say that doing the Father's will energizes him. In this sense, Jesus is saying that doing God's will nourishes and strengthens him so that he can continue to do God's will. Food energizes us, doesn't it? It strengthens us. 
When we eat food, it enables us to keep going. And so his strength to continue to do the Father's will comes from doing the Father's will and accomplishing what he has called him to do, his mission in life. And I think both of these ideas are included here. Satisfying and energizing and strengthening. And we would see that this passion for doing the Father's will actually characterized his whole life. For instance, we're told in chapter 5, verse 36, and chapter 6, verse 38, that he came to do the Father's will. That's why he came. And we're told in chapter 8, verse 29, that he always did the Father's will, and nothing less. And in fact, Jesus alone could say of his life that he perfectly fulfilled the Father's will. We see this in chapter 17, verse 4. I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. He could say that like no one else could say. So what is this work that Jesus was called to do? What is the Father's will? That is the big question, isn't it? What is this will of God? What is this mission that he is on? What is he so passionate about that he compares it to physical food and satisfying him and energizing him? Well, I think the answer is found in John 6, verse 39. Listen to what Jesus says. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In John 6, verse 37, we hear this. All those the Father gives will come to me. In John 17, verse 2, you have given me authority over, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This means that Jesus' mission was to give eternal life to all that the Father had given him. And he would accomplish this through bearing witness of the gospel. So think about this. The Father, before time began, gave this gift to the Son that is the harvest. Jesus' mission was to give eternal life to all those whom the Father had given him. And he accomplishes this mission by indiscriminately giving the gospel and bearing witness to the gospel, to crowds, to individuals, to various people whom he meets along the way. And why? Because that is how God is going to draw his people to himself. And it actually says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. They will hear and they will be saved. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing with the woman at the well. So here Jesus explains what he is doing, his mission, what he is passionately pursuing through bearing witness of the gospel. And he is completely caught up in this. He is passionate about it. He's being driven by this. To gather together to save all that the Father has given him. Because that's what he's here for. I also want you to notice how tiring and exhausting and intensive this work is that Jesus is doing. It is hard but he is not begrudging it. It is not easy, but he loves to do it. Jesus has this perfect attitude, doesn't he? 
He is not complaining. He loves to do the Father's will. Even when he's hungry and thirsty and tired, he has a mission and he loves to do it. And he is urgently pursuing it. So second, Jesus calls his disciples to join him with urgency on his mission. And we see this in verses 35 through 38. So when you look at these verses, you wonder, what are we to make of this farming analogy? What does Jesus mean by the harvest and the sower and the reaping? Now the sower is the one who has worked to make the reaping possible, right? Now some people say this is John the Baptist. Other people say it's the prophets who's done the sowing. That's what Jesus is saying here. There are those who have sowed, right? In the past. But ultimately, Jesus does the hard work of sowing through the cross, doesn't he? We reap because of the work that he has accomplished through his own blood. So, whatever it is saying here, there are, there are prophets, there is John the Baptist, but ultimately it's Jesus who has done the hard work of sowing. And the crop refers to people who are receiving eternal life, who are following Jesus and believing in him. They are those who will hear the word, believe the word, and we'll see, we'll receive eternal life. And then there's this great reward that the sower and the reaper are receiving. And so you wonder, what is this reward? And the reward is clearly the harvest. Those who are receiving eternal life, that is the reward. And what greater reward would there be? It's an incredible reward for those who are, are working at the harvest, sowing and reaping and receiving the reward of the harvest which is those who've received eternal life. So what does this harvesting analogy have to do with the disciples' mission? Because that's what Jesus is talking about here, isn't he? He's talking about their mission that he's called them to do. What does this have to do with the harvesting of souls that God has assigned them to do? Now, Jesus says that the natural way of doing things is that you sow, and then four months later, you have a harvest, Right? And so you sow, you wait four months, and then this harvest comes out miraculously from the ground. But Jesus is saying things are not ordinary right now. Things are not happening as they usually do. There is something miraculous going on here. That the sowing and the reaping are happening together. That these things are happening at the same time. This is incredible. What is going on here? No need to wait for four months for the harvest. It was already time for reaping. Sowing and reaping are coming together at the same exact time. The harvest has already begun. So what Jesus is saying here is that what happens is superseding all expectations and explanations. There's this unprecedented fertility within the crops. And what would explain this? How would you explain what's going on? And the only explanation is that the Messiah has come. That the Messiah is here. That the promised future kingdom age was beginning to dawn in the ministry of Jesus. The kingdom of God was bursting in in supernatural ways. And really what they are witnessing and what we are witnessing here as we look at what Jesus is saying 
is the fulfillment of the promise of Amos. In Amos chapter 9, verse 13. Listen to these words and recognize the fulfillment of what Jesus is talking about here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. What he's, what he's saying is that this is going to happen in the future. Exactly what we're saying here is going to happen. And it's happening right now. We are told of a time when the sowing and the reaping would go hand in hand. And this happening would indicate that the times of blessings, the end times of blessings would be upon them. And they're experiencing these things at this moment, which would indicate that this is the moment of the fulfillment of the things that Amos was speaking of. Incredible. There were therefore, and there's an application to this, there is something Jesus is driving towards in saying this. They are therefore to be urgently about doing the Father's business. They're urgently to be about doing this mission that they are called to do. There was an urgent work to be done, and now is not the time to be resting. What does this mean for us? How are we to understand this in light of the mission that God has called us to? Well, we have all made things like food and sports and a host of other things our primary mission in life, haven't we, at times? And these things sort of satisfied for a moment, right? They sort of energized us. They sort of gave us strength for a moment. But Jesus is telling us that all other pursuits, as good as they might be, must be secondary to our primary pursuit. All these other things must not be central to our mission and our pursuit in life. Our central concern should be to do the Father's will of glorifying God through bearing witness of Jesus Christ. He's also saying that if you're to faithfully bear witness, there must be an urgency to your work. There must be an urgency to our, our mission of bearing witness to Jesus. The time for harvest is now. There's no need to wait. There's nothing to wait for. We need to be about busy telling people about Jesus. You need to feel the urgency of the mission that is right before you. Do you feel the urgency of the mission that we are on and that we're called to do? Now, the problem is, if you're like me, that there are so many things that distract us. Isn't that true? There's so many things that come in that distract us from this being our mission and our, per, and our pursuit. can easily be distracted by other, even good things in life. It can be the news. It can be fears that are out there, that are all around me. It can be entertainment, right? That just distracts me and keeps me from pursuing those things that God has called me to do. But none of these things are our primary mission. And so I think it's good to hear Charles Spurgeon, who was preaching on this passage, and he challenged his congregation to respond properly to this passage with these words. Some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings, the Bible readings, and prophetic conferences, and other forms of spiritual indulgence, would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and needy around you, if you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men. 
you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working gives men spiritual indigestion. Be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a Savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, no object, in fact, to live for, and who wonders if you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you're ready to die of despair. So what Jesus is saying here is that this is for the glory of God and for your good. It is for our good that we be about the business of the mission of bearing witness to Jesus. It is for our contentment. It is for our joy. It is for our energizing and strengthening for the work that is ahead of us that we are about doing the business that God has called us to do. And we naturally think that pursuing our own self-interest is going to energize us and strengthen us and benefit us, don't we? But in reality, doing God's will alone will bring us good and will satisfy us and will bring us joy, no matter how difficult and much of a struggle and how much we lose in doing so. It is always for the better and for the glory of God. So let's embrace our mission and not listen to the lie of this world, right? That we, so desi- we are so desirous to embrace the lie of the world, right? And let us embrace the mission that God has called us to. So finally, Jesus gives an example of what this mission looks like through the conversion of a Samaritan woman and her village. Here is an example of Jesus' mission that he's calling us to be a part of. In verses 27 through 30 and 39 through 42. So just remember, go back way at the beginning here, and remember that the disciples were shocked, right? So we need to ask, what is so shocking to them? Well, they're shocked to find Jesus talking to a woman in verse 20, 27. And, and for us, that's really no big deal, right? What's the big deal with Jesus talking to a woman? Why, why would you be shocked about that? But for those in that day, And for the disciples, this was a big deal. (laughs) Men did not talk to a woman like this. It was not socially acceptable for a man to talk to a woman alone like this. Carson writes about the thinking towards woman of that day, and, and just hear this. Some Jewish people held that for a rabbi to talk much with a woman, even his own wife, was at best a waste of time, and at worst a diversion from the study of Torah and therefore potentially a great evil that could lead to Gehenna, and that is hell. Well, okay. (laughs) Wow. But on top of this, you have to add the fact that she was a Samaritan woman. So this would have made it even more the wrong thing for him to do, right? Or at least not make sense to them. And the response of the disciples indicates that they had embraced the thinking of the day, right? They could not understand why Jesus was talking to this woman. Now, they could understand why Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, but they couldn't understand why Jesus was talking to this woman. And the disciples' response indicate that this woman was not, in their mind, the most appealing candidate for someone to witness to because she did not match their criteria, right? This was not the type of person that they wanted to witness to. We have all thought this way about people, haven't we? 
we're not as much different than disciples as we might think we are. <laughs> this person is really not the type of person that I would prefer to reach out to. Of course we want to bear witness to people about the kingdom of God in Jesus. But the Samaritan woman? People walk through the door of the church and many of us already have them pegged, don't we? Helpful, not helpful. My type, not my type. Well, it's sad, but it's true, isn't it? We do the same thing all the time. And we also have prejudices. And so when we hear about these prejudices, we think, that's incredible. How can anyone think that way? But then we look at ourselves and we find that we do the same thing. We do the same thing. But Jesus is not enslaved to the judgmental, prejudiced thinking of the day like his disciples are. He is actually doing the Father's will. He's harvesting souls. He's urgently doing the Father's business. And so he sows and reaps the Samaritan woman instantaneously and gains the most surprising harvest imaginable. A whole village turns to Jesus. And isn't it amazing how that works in verses 28 through 30? Now, some people make a big deal about the fact that he leaves, she leaves this water jar, right? And we don't know exactly what that means, so I'm not going to make anything up here. But there is something that is clearly significant here. The fact that she bears witness to Jesus, and not only that she bears witness to Jesus, but, but that she does it what appears to be in an urgency, in a passionate way, just like what the disciples were being called to do from Jesus. She's eager to get back to town because she wants to tell everyone about this Jesus and who he is. Do you remember when you were a kid and you got something for Christmas? And you wanted to tell everybody about what you got. It was the greatest thing in the world, and you couldn't help but tell people. It's kind of like what's going on here with the Samaritan woman. You know, I found the Savior of the world. <laughs> I found the one who's the Savior of the world. How can she not tell everyone? And I, I just imagine, it doesn't say, but I imagine her running. Running to tell them. And the actual words she says in bearing witness to Jesus are very significant as well. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Strangely, strange, strangely, she's telling them that this man knew everything about me and exposed everything about me. And, and if you know what happened, you'll think that's very strange, that she finds that to be a good thing, Right? What did Jesus know about her? Well, Jesus knew that she was a sinner and exposed it, right? And Jesus exposed that she was very needy and was trying to find satisfaction in all the wrong places, right? And so she goes around and says, look at there's someone who knows everything about me and exposes me inside and outside. He, he exposed everything that was hidden in darkness and that I was trying to hide from the world from, <laughs> Right? Everything that I was hiding, he has exposed. And instead of holding him at arm's length to hide from him or being angry at him, what does she do? She says, he told me everything. Could this be the Christ? You need to get to know him. <laughs> she is no longer thinking of Jesus as a prophet, but as the prophet. And so this must have been shocking to everyone who heard her. Just imagine this. Imagine being there. You see something dramatic has happened to this woman. Her whole direction has changed. Her whole purpose has changed. She has a new direction. She's a new person. And no one could have possibly missed 
that this was going on. She is no longer hiding from her sin in shame. She no longer is avoiding people because of her shame. But now she is doing the most loving thing you can possibly do, witnessing to others about Jesus from someone who did not care about others, from someone who had no interest in other people and was hiding from others because of her sin. Now she is doing the most loving thing you could possibly do. Love is flowing from her heart. Incredible. There's like the spring of love that's coming from this empty and dry well. It's no longer dry anymore. There's love flowing from her. That's amazing. And get the, get the, she doesn't know how people are going to respond. She doesn't know if they're going to listen to her. She has no idea. They might hate her for what she says. And her response is in complete contrast to Nicodemus. Nicodemus remained in the dark, but she comes to the light and calls others to the light. So my question for you, and you already know the answer to this, is what has happened to her? What has happened? Well, the answer is obvious. New birth has happened. She has been born again. A saving work of God has happened to her. She has eyes of faith and she sees Jesus and she loves Jesus. She sees his glory. She was dead and now she's alive. And the evidence of her new birth is her transformation into a witness of Christ Jesus. Her bold and urgent witness is evidence of her new birth. This is what it looks like to be saved. Jesus himself says that this is evidence of, the, of, of spiritual birth. This is evidence of what it means to be genuinely saved. In Matthew 10, verse 32 through 33. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will also disown him before my Father in heaven. Jesus will not diso- disown his people when we stand before him in heaven. This is talking about believers versus unbelievers. J.C. Ryle gives the reason why we do this when he says this. Listen to these words. Grace, once introduced into the heart, drives out old taste and interest. A converted person no longer cares for what he once cared for. A new tenant is in the house. A new pilot is at the helm. The whole world looks different. And that's why we got to be careful that we don't rely on simply a confession as evidence and as the basis for our salvation. There must be a fruit. There must be a changed life. Jesus always does a great and miraculous work. And it might look different in different people, and it might look slower over time for some people than others, but he always does a great work, and he always transforms lives. And so here, right before us, is an example of the harvest that is ready for reaping. The plowing has been done in this woman's heart, and now Jesus is reaping the reward. And the result is quite impressive. A woman who is passionate to bear witness to Jesus. What a miracle! What an incredible work of God we see going on here. A heart devoted to Jesus. Now, this woman knows very little about Jesus, but she loves what she knows about him. Do you notice that? We know this because of her urgency to bear witness to Jesus, to her village. We know that she loves what she knows about Jesus, even though it's very little, because of her urgency to bear witness to Jesus and tell others about him. How many of us have so much more knowledge, 
but have so little interest to bear witness about Jesus. Why is this the case? And the reason is because oftentimes what we know about Jesus has not reached our hearts. It is a bunch of great information, a bunch of head knowledge, but nothing more than that. But even if a little bit of this greatness of Jesus reaches our heart, what is it going to do to us? It's going to make us want to tell others. It's going to make us want to say, Jesus is great, and bear witness to him, to make him known. And what is amazing is the result of this woman's witness about Jesus in the village. The whole town must have been impressed what they saw. And you know what? They didn't know anything about Jesus. All they saw was this woman. That's all they saw. They saw something has happened to her. Something has changed. I got to go see who this person is, right? They want to see for themselves who has accomplished this miracle in this woman. So what is it that makes this town people respond to the message? They want to see who has done this to this woman. We can learn something valuable about our witness from this woman, can't we? You must see Jesus for who he is, as your Savior in all his glory. You must have a change of heart, new affections and new directions. And you must proclaim Jesus as Savior. (laughs) It's pretty simple, isn't it? And what we find is that from the most unlikely source has reaped a harvest, a great harvest. The great harvest that is reaped consists of those of whom the world has no use for, in verses 39 through 42. Initially, they believe because of the woman's testimony, but then what happens is what we want to happen when we witness. We don't want them to believe because of our word. We want them to go to Jesus and to believe because they have come to him themselves. And so really, that's our goal, isn't it, in witnessing? It's not enough that they believe because of what we say. We want them to go to Jesus himself and say, we have believed because we have come to him and we have heard him ourselves. We have come to know that he is the Savior. And what an incredible confession. He is the Savior of the world. That is not just of the Jews, not just of the, of the Samaritans, the half-breeds, but also of the Gentiles. He is the Savior of all who believe and trust in him. And he is the only Savior throughout the whole world. You can go throughout the whole world and you'll never find another Savior apart from Jesus himself. And and sometimes what I do when I'm witnessing is I tell people, I'll explain the gospel as best I can do and then I'll tell them, I'll say, read the Bible for yourself because the Bible will show you that what I'm saying is true. And and we must never fear that. We must never feel people going to the Bible and being confused or, or turning away because of what they read. Don't fear that. The Bible says, my sheep will hear my voice. And so if they are his chosen people, they will hear his voice and they will be saved. And it's through his word that that happens. When we see a harvest like this, we should be shocked at the miracle of God. Here's a a Jewish teacher that the Samaritans are listening to. Here's a sinful Samaritan woman whom the whole town (laughs) hears and is converted. Everything about this is shocking. And I think sometimes we've heard this so many times that we miss it. And we must remember that this harvest is not natural. It's not our abilities. It's not our greatness. It's not our knowledge. 
It's ultimately Jesus who's going to save. And we must proclaim Jesus. God loves to use the most unlikely witnesses like you and me to show how great he is. So if you are an unlikely source, take heart today. God loves to use you. You are the perfect candidate to bearing witness to Jesus. So Jesus made it clear that our mission, what our mission is in Acts 1 verse 8, when he told his disciples this. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is the the mission that God has called us to pursue with urgency. We are to go out and glorify God through bearing witness to his great name. And the big question for each of us is how do I become someone who is passionate about bearing witness to Jesus? Do I have to take some class? And the answer is no. Um, Those things can be helpful. But no, you do not have to take some special class nor do you have to memorize some special strategy. Um, Those things can be helpful, but they're not necessary. Remember that this woman took no class, and she had no special strategy. What matters is that you are born again. It's that simple. You must be born again. You must see Jesus. If you don't see Jesus, if you are dead to the glory of Jesus, you are not going to be able to bear witness of him. And you're not going to see any, 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 any glory in even telling others about him. You're not going to be driven to do so. What matters, if you are born again, is that you are continuing to grow to love Jesus more and more as you get to know him better and better through his word. You grow in your love for Jesus by knowing him better. That is how it always works. And the scripture says this, He who has been forgiven much loves much. That is the key to motivating us to bearing witness to Jesus. If you have been forgiven much and you know it, you're going to want others to know about Jesus. You're going to love others more and more. This brings me to the concern I have as we come to a close here. We are passionate about the truth. We are passionate to understand the truth of of, of God here. And, And praise God for that. That is something we should be passionate about. I praise God for that. My concern is that we might fail to love the truth we are pursuing to know. And we should all be concerned about this. This should be something that we are all concerned about. That we don't just gather head knowledge for the sake of knowing more information. And one indication for how well you really know Jesus is your passion to bear witness about him. We should be like this Samaritan woman, wanting others to know about him, urgently telling others about Jesus. And be warned, if you try to do this motivated by anything else like guilt, it won't last. The motivation of guilt does not last. It's a terrible motivator. Being compelled to bear witness out of love for Jesus is motivation that will last. And this is the only motivation that will truly last. And so we are urgently to bear witness, but at the end, we must rely on the miracle-working God for the outcome of our mission. Let me close with Augustine's reflection about Jesus Christ. You are ever active, yet always at rest. You gather all things to yourself, though you suffer no need. You welcome those who come to you, though you never lost them. You release us from our debts, but you lose nothing thereby. You are my God, my life, my holy delight. But this is enough 
But is this enough to say of you? Can any man say enough when he speaks of you? Yet woe betide those who are silent about you. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that we have a message, that we have a mission today, and that is the greatest mission of all. Lord, you are a mighty Savior. You are the only Savior. And Lord, I pray that you would cause me and cause each one of us to recognize the truth of what that means. Help us to see your glory. Help us to recognize how much you've forgiven us. And help us to bear witness of your great name to everyone that we see. Make us bold and courageous witnesses of your glory. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking truth to us. And I pray that we would go and that we would bear witness of you with our lives. And I pray that if there's anyone in here who's not saved, that today would be the day of salvation. That they would cry out to you for salvation because you're the only one who can save. And you say in your word that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. We ask this in your, for your name's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.